Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Well, that was, well, you sleep? We need a coffee in the back or something? Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. You know, I was just thinking about, as I, we were passing the offering, all the funny things that have happened to me over the course of being in the ministry and being at church, because my parents drug me to church every time they had a chance. And, and, uh, but anyway, it's when the offering plate meets in the middle. It's like it's a disruption in the space-time continuum or something. It's like people are like, well, what do I do? You know? And so I just say, you know, it's a chance for you to make up when you didn't give before. It's coming by again. Just, you know, make sure you catch up or whatever. But anyway, it just happened just now. Just maybe crack up. And, of course, my youngest son was cracking up, too. If you are, uh, would like to participate in, in junior church, on that mature note, if you'd like to participate in junior church uh, through grade four, you can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, if you would, turn to John 13. Would you do that? John 13. And the uh, cartoon today will apply, and you'll see how as uh, we witness in a watching world. But John 13, go there if you would. We're going to be in John 13 just for a little bit to illustrate the start of our time together. It's my inclination today to finish, it's my determination, I should say, to finish uh, Romans 9, or uh, rather Romans 9, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9 will be there, and we'll finish it today, Lord willing. So uh, if you need notes, there are notes on the back of your bulletin, you, if those are helpful to you. And as I go through There'll be things behind me that are underlined. Those are uh, take-homes and takeaways for you. You can copy those down if you'd like. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible. You can find that in front of you in the chair, or you can use yours. I'll give you verse cues. We can stay together. All right? It's good to be together this morning. I'm excited about the time we'll spend today. As I think it's, uh, as you have seen, it's been very relevant. If your, your comments and your inclinations and your, uh, your uh, notes and texts have been an indication, it has been right where we've been right where we needed to be as a church so it's been a blessing anyway look there if you would john 13 really starts off this morning on the right track we touched briefly on this passage last time but we didn't look at it in any length so i'd like to turn there john 13 we're going to read starting in verse 3 and we'll just read through just several verses there in a row and get the sense of it jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come forth from god was going back to god now the setting of course is uh, the night before Jesus is betrayed, the night of Jesus' betrayal and before he goes to the cross. And so that's the setting there. He's with his disciples. Verse 4, Jesus, uh, knowing he came forth from God, was going back to God. Verse 4, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said, what I do you do not realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. Let's pause right there for a second and just catch the scene, if you will. Um, all had been prepared for this last meal with the disciples with the exception of one thing. First century Palestine, everyone wore sandals. Foot washing was refreshing. It was as well as cleanly. When guests would come, typically the host would, in the case of ordinary people, furnish the water and the guests wash their own feet. And just as a footnote, of course, in, in Luke 7, Jesus points out to Simon the Pharisee uh, and his neglect in providing water for Jesus to wash his own feet. At the same time, there's a woman who's been forgiven a lot of sin. She's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying with her hair. You know that story. So that kind of confirms. Typically in a house, uh, especially in a, a common house, the guests would wash their own feet, but water would be provided. Uh, though in wealthier homes, the washing was done by a slave. Obviously, it was looked upon as one of the lowliest of all services. So what would happen was a servant with a basin of water would come and a towel in hand and he would kneel and wash the feet of the guests who'd walk down the dusty roads of Palestine. And, and here we are with the disciples and Jesus. 
in this room. So who's going to take the position of this servant to perform the task? And you kind of just see the disciples kind of looking around through the corner of their eye. They're wondering who's going to, you know, where's the servant? Who's going to get up? And, you know, who's going to wash the feet? It's, it's custom for it to happen. You know, um, they're all, of course, expecting someone else to do this, but never for a moment considering doing it themselves. And then out of the blue, as perfect as a picture and a lesson of what it looks like to be a servant, in this instance, the bond servant, um, there's this perfect example of laying aside rights, laying aside freedoms that we've been talking about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Jesus stands up, he lays aside his outer garment, he puts a towel around his waist, he takes a basin of water, and no doubt everybody in the room at the very same moment realized what was about to happen, I'm sure to their horror, uh, if what Peter says is any indication. And he begins to wash the feet of the disciples, all of which is really a fitting analogy of yielding his privileges, assuming the role of a slave, which is exactly what Paul's been teaching us. And after, of course, Jesus is doing that after they've all been arguing over who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom on their way there. And while they were there, figuring out who gets to sit on the right hand or the left side of Jesus now and who will get to sit on the right and left hand of Jesus later in the kingdom. So this is the, these are the conversations that the disciples are having while they're sitting down to eat this meal and they're waiting for a servant to come and wash their feet. And a servant did come and wash their feet. Now look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment... And reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? Verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I, so I am. Verse 14, But if then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Back to verse 3. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. I want to point out a couple of things here, and I think it's important as we think about this whole servant heart attitude that we're talking about here, and giving up rights for other believers, giving up rights for the unredeemed, Jesus knew a few things about himself, didn't he? He knew who he was. He knew the authority that he had. It wasn't a secret to him. He came to humble himself. It was the Father's will that he do it. And in that confidence, then, he took the place of a slave. According to Philippians 2, 5 through 8, that attitude marked his entire mission on earth, didn't it? Uh, taking on the form of a man and the form of a bondservant, being submissive to death on a cross, all of that. And then verse 15, it says, For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. And verse 16, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And here's the thing. That is the example of what he wants the church to do. Blessed, you know, if you know these things, he says, if you understand uh, who I was and what I did, you understand who you are and what I'm asking you to do, blessed you are if you do them. Now, I, I don't think we can come away from the passage with any other understanding. It isn't complicated. It's what his church, he wants the church to do. He wants to lead by example, show them what it looks like to serve each other. And it's based on who we are in Christ. He's the master, and as he just got through saying, uh, we are to be like him. We are co-heirs with Christ. Uh, the kingdom belongs to us. We're secured our future. Our sins are forgiven. Uh, we have the Holy Spirit's resource in our lives to enable us. And if we know these things, which we do, we're blessed if we do them. So we also know there's a reward connected to doing it. So above all things about being, being like the master, all the things that are part of who we know we are, co-heirs with Christ, uh, consider children of the Lord, all of those things, we're blessed then knowing that 
if we do them, the Lord's going to reward us. Verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. A choice willingly to limit freedom. See, Christ made himself of no reputation. To be a servant to the church and to the lost, Christ took upon the form of a servant. Uh, you know, Luke tells us that he came to seek and save the lost. And you begin to look like, when you do that, see, you begin to look like a reprint of Christ, and you have a promised blessing as a result. Now, that's the, that kind of lays the foundation of where we're going to be. Now, I'd like you to flip over, if you would, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. That is our passage and our consideration this morning. And Lord willing, we're going to finish that passage today. And so I'd like you to read together with me so we can allow the Holy Spirit to go to work in our own hearts as we read this passage in light of what we just read, which I think is so important and tailored for our study today. Look at verse 19. Paul says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 26, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Verse 27, I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, let's do a quick review. Look at verse 19. This is where we were last week. Just, we're going to sum this up just in the next five minutes. So uh, you are with us and on the same page as we move into this last portion of the scriptures. Verse 19 says, Paul says this. He says, for though I am free from all men. Now, this is not an uncommon uh, comment by Paul. We've looked at it over and over again. It's just he's unrestrained. He's not bound by any obligation. Paul says, I'm not just free. I'm free from all men. There's no yoke on me. I'm free in Christ. I know what I'm able to do. I know uh, the freedoms that I have. Uh, I understand my freedom. I'm, I'm under no obligation, if you will, inside my freedom in Christ to respond like someone thinks I should respond. I understand this, he says. I understand it better than you do, he says. This is uh, something that I, I comprehend. And then this astonishing statement, and we, we broke this apart last time. We broke the words apart. We won't do it again, just this. He says, for though I'm free from all men, so I'm free from any obligation of what somebody preconceived idea, what they think I need to do because I'm a Christian, and because you're a Christian, you have to do this thing to prove you're a Christian. He says, I'm free of all that. However, and this, this statement is so amazing. We looked at it last time. I have made myself a slave to all so that I, might win, I may win more. And that astonishing statement really is, this simply means that Paul, in time past, has placed himself as an active bond slave relationship to the redeemed, to the unredeemed. So in time past, Paul sat, you know, where, wherever he was, he recognized that his job was going to be to place himself in a bond slave, a willing, free bond slave relationship, something he brings to the table, to the unredeemed. That's just an amazing statement. It really is part and parcel, though, as we looked at last time, of what it means to be a believer. Placing yourself inside the freedom in Christ as a servant as a bondservant to the unredeemed, so that what you do matters. As the world looks at it, as uh, other uh, believers look at what you do, you're responsible in your freedom in Christ to care for them. But Paul particularly is focusing here 
on those who are unredeemed. And in the early part of this chapter, he focused on the church and said, listen, I understand some of the issues that are going on here. Uh, you understand that you have some freedom. I understand that freedom. And then I'm going to place my, a limit to my freedom to not offend some in the church who had some problems with what Paul was doing. But now he moves beyond the church and just says, listen, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. As we think about our opening passage, really just basic to the Christian faith, Paul knew who he was, as we really kind of tie back to what we just looked at in John 13. You know, Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, uh, Paul knew who he was. He knew the relationship he had with the Lord. He knew the job he was given to do. He didn't have an ego problem in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. He, you know, as he's talking about his relationship to the church, he says, you know, uh, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Because there was some faction there. There was some personality cults going on there. I like Paul. I like, you know, uh, Apollos. I, I like Peter. I'm, I'm, I've sat under Jesus. All that kind of stuff was going on in the church, and they all do it differently, and there was some problems there. Paul says, you know, who, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? Servants. That's who we are. We're servants whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Uh, you know, he says, I planted, Apollos watered. God was causing the growth, so neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but God who causes the growth. Paul didn't have an ego problem. He wasn't consumed with himself. He didn't have, you know, he wasn't tooting his own horn. He just knew who he was. He knew the job he had to do. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew his relationship to Christ and all of that. And then, you know, he, he knew what he had in the future. He knew what was in store, 2 Timothy 4, 8. You know, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. He knew where he was going. He knew the reward that was there. He talked about rewards a lot. And we've looked at some of that early in 1 Corinthians. So he can humble himself then. He could limit his freedom for the sake of the gospel and be exactly like his master. He understood his position. It wasn't the struggle of ego and all this stuff and doing one thing, not doing something else for some uh, men's approval. He understood where he was, and he just said, listen, I've made a decision in the past, and it's going to continue right on through that I'm going to make myself a bond slave to the unredeemed. In verse 19, he says, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. See that? I made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. What does the master do? He comes and seeks and saves the lost. He humbles himself, becomes a bond servant, submissive to death even on a cross. That's a great example for us. Submission, respect, and love for God, doing what he did, or serving the living God, emulating Christ's behavior. Uh, we're witnessing the gospel. And so that becomes this great example of what it just looks like to be a believer. It's not some two levels of Christianity where you come to faith and now you're going to be a bondservant. It's just it's part of and parcel of who you are in Christ. And what seems to be obvious here is, as Paul really begins this section in context, really giving the Corinthian church another example of his freedom to restrict his freedom. He says, look, I've been doing this for my entire ministry. And we saw a very important first principle for us. It's the overarching mindset we just talked about several times now that has to be in place as a believer fulfilling the Great Commission. That is, we are free to be a servant to the gospel. We're free for that. We're free to limit our freedom. We're free to rein ourselves in whatever it takes in order to bridge for the gospel. We've been made free of all men to be a servant to all men. And that really is Paul's emphasis here. Paul freed himself from everybody just that he might be everybody's servant. He wasn't restricted by anybody's you know, expectations of him. He wasn't worried about whether someone thought he should do this certain thing or not do that certain thing. He understood his freedom in Christ completely. And most importantly, he understood his freedom as an opportunity to willingly submit himself to all he would witness to. And so he's going to really open that up and give us some examples here. So when Paul says, look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19, uh, for though I am free of, from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. He's not just restricting his freedom to help those in the church in Corinth, which we saw earlier. 
He's restricting his freedom for the bigger picture. He'll do whatever's required or do without whatever's required to see the gospel be effective. That was his point. And then Paul says, look at verse 20, if you would, in your copy of God's word. Uh, verse 20, to the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. Now, we saw that last time, and, and here's really Paul's first example of what it means to just go the distance, restrict your freedom for uh, whoever, to make myself a slave to all. The Jew became his first example. He's acting on this principle we saw. He's free to set aside his freedom for the gospel, and here it's for the Jew. Uh, so what does he mean, Paul? You know, because Paul's a Jew, isn't he? I mean, why does he say to the Jew I became a Jew? And we saw last time that Paul ceased being a national Jew, in his words, a Jew outwardly, when he was redeemed. And at that point, really free uh, from the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, the circumcision, uh, the feast days, sacrificial law, all of that. And we saw some examples. We won't look at them again. But if, if someone told Paul, you have to do this to be pleasing to God, uh, Paul would say, no, I don't. I'm free from all men. I'm free in Christ. I understand what that means. I don't have to do that. But we also saw last time that if, if Paul could see that acting on the freedom that he had in Christ, he could do some dietary thing, he could do some ceremonial, sacrificial thing in order to pave the way to be a witness of the gospel to the Jew, he's got no problems doing that. See? He'll go ahead and restrict his freedom, and he'll just say, okay, I'll submit to that. I'll cut my hair, take a Nazarite vow. I'll, I'll pay for the sacrifices of these four guys if it paves the way to, to, uh, sac to talk to the Jew about Christ. So Paul had a burden for the Jew. He's willing to set aside his rights, his freedoms, for the sake of the gospel. And, he becomes a, and so he becomes a Jew, if you will, outwardly. So look at 1 Corinthians 9.20. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. If he could help the believing Jew keep them from stumbling over his freedom, if he could keep from wounding their conscience, if he could keep them from ruin, he would give up his freedom. He would become, and that's the word I became in Genomen, uh, just aorist, middle, indicative. Simply, this freedom is what I contributed. I brought this to the table. Middle voice just means the subject initiated the action. So Paul says, listen, I became like a Jew. I brought this to the table. I'm going to do this. And in the same way as Paul ministered to the Corinthians without charge, it wasn't God's law that commanded it. It wasn't men telling him he had to do it. Paul contributed that. When the opportunity arose, he took it. It's the same here. And in the aorist tense, with the indicative, just means it's actually happened. And we saw that in, uh, in the book of Acts last time where it actually occurred. So the emphasis here is, if he could, by giving up his freedom... Uh, from the ceremonies, paved the way for the gospel, what would Paul do? Even to his own detriment. The answer would be, yes, he would. He would give it up. He'd give up his freedom, even to his own detriment, if it paved the way for the Jew. And it was to his own detriment. It backfired on him big time. The Jew didn't accept it, thought he was defiling the temple, and just about killed him before the Roman cohort came and rescued him. So it doesn't always work out like Paul uh, wanted it to, and that's why he says, Look, don't trouble me about this. I bear on my body the marks of the mission. I've already been there, okay? I know how, how cruel my countrymen can be. I know how uh, rough it can be ministering in the Gentile world and becoming all things to all people. So, I look at verse 20, if you would. We see this last part of verse 20. To the Jew I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. And this group, as we saw last time, is the same group uh, that I became as implied here. I became this. I brought this to the table. It's not just Paul clarifying. You know, I think it's Paul just clarifying the difference between Israel of God and national Israel. Just making it clear. National Israel is under the law. This would be the sacrificial law, ceremonial law, dietary law, all of that. And we really saw the beginning of our next principle that has to do with our freedom to restrict our freedom for the gospel. And that second principle was really important. Paul went as far as he could go without untruthfulness to connect with the unredeemed to give them the gospel. He went as far as he could go. 
First of all, we're free to be a servant for the gospel to all people. Secondly, we're free to go as far as we can go without being untruthful uh, to connect with the unsaved. And that becomes really the motivation for us and a path, if you will, to minister to the unredeemed. And we saw a couple of qualifiers last time, and we won't dwell on them, but just this. We're not dishonest when we do that. We're not minimizing the distinctions uh, between being a believer, not a believer. We're not minimizing the distinctives of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. We're not watering that down. Our freedom isn't in order to have the best of both worlds. In other words, I'm going to go witness here because I can do the things I really want to do, even though I don't think those are the things I should be doing. In other words, we're not doing what we're doing in order to use our freedom as a cloak for fleshliness. See, we saw that warning several times last time. And I just gave you this. This is the qualifier, I think, as you think about bridging the, go- uh, the gap uh, to the unredeemed world for the gospel. Just remember this. Don't do anything with the lost that they're going to have to turn from when they come to faith. Okay? Don't do anything with the lost that they're going to have to turn from when they come to faith. All right? Because then you're not helping the cause. So just let that be that uh, kind of a, a, an over, overriding uh, moderator there as you do what you do. Our motivation is to do it in love. To our, even to our own detriment, sacrificing our own freedom to do it. It's a love for the lost and a keenness to bring them to truth by bridging the gap and laying aside some of our freedom. Now let's sum up this section. Very important. Okay. First example, Paul's going to go, in Paul going as far as he can go uh, to bridge the gap to the unredeemed is to the Jew. But Paul was a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, according to Philippians chapter 3. But at the moment of slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul became free from the bonds of Judaism as a man in Christ, he was no longer under the law. He understood that. But to gain those still under the law, Paul placed himself under the law when he was present with Jews in order to gain them. He didn't want to have a stumbling block there. He didn't want to tear up the, the road the gospel has to use. And so he, could, he, could, he was a Hebrew ethnically, ethnically, so he had access to other Jews. And when he was in their company, Paul set aside his freedom. He kept their feasts. He ate their food. He submitted to ceremonial law. With Jews, Paul was a Jew so that he could pave the way for a Jew. Now, we know that the Lord gave Paul a ministry, his major ministry, to uh, the Gentile nations. And this really becomes Paul's second example of setting aside his freedom and going as far as he could uh, go for the Gentiles. Okay, he went as far as he could go for the Jews without being dishonest, without minimizing the distinctives, without minimizing the gospel. But he could bridge the gap so he wasn't digging up the road that the Jew would have to travel in order to be saved. But he was, to a great degree, uh, here involved in his God-directed mission to the uncircumcised, to the Gentile. That was Paul's main mission, mission, his main ministry. So he introduces himself in that way. Remember in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says this. He says, uh, for though I, uh, for, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. That's Paul's main ministry, a Gentile ministry. And so verse 21, you know, really represents Paul's primary life ministry. So he says, look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 9. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Okay? So this is that second example of Paul going as far as he could go. He's, he's not going to be a Jew around Gentiles. Okay? In fact, the very things that, Paul, uh, things that Paul the Jew would do with Jews, he considered troubling to the Gentiles. That was some of his own language. He says, look, we're not going to trouble them my judgment is, he says, we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Trouble them with what? Being a Jew, okay? Ceremonial law, uh, you know, sacrificial law, all of those kinds of things. We're not going to trouble them. So he's not bringing that to the table when he comes to the Gentile camp. He says in verse 21, to those who are without law. Now that's speaking of Gentiles. 
They are without law. Same wording, same group we saw in Romans chapter 1. He says those are without law, as without law. There's the same group. Romans 2, verse 12. See that? For all who have sinned without law will also perish uh, without the law. Speaking, of course, of unredeemed people, if you don't have the law, you won't be judged by the law. And the words without the law in Romans 2.12 is addressing the same group Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Without law. Written scripture, specifically Mosaic law. So they're without the prophets. They're without special revelation. Of course, they're without the ceremonial law, feast days, dietary, sacrificial laws. They're without all of that. That's the group. Gentile group. So we know who the target is. So as without law in Romans 2 means the same thing as in 1 Corinthians 9.21. So when Paul is with the Gentiles in Gentile cities... He would adapt their cultural behavior. He's free. We saw this early, didn't we? An idol is nothing, okay? Uh, false gods are nothing. Paul's not worried about any of that. There's nobody ruling on the throne of this false idol. There's nobody uh, actually stamping his approval on this false sacrifice to a false god. There's no, none of that, okay? Paul knew he was free. He could go and he could eat and he could do all that. We're going to see though uh, with the qualification that he did not live as a lawless man. He didn't live as a wicked man. He isn't going to participate in idol worship to win souls. He's not going to participate in immorality to win souls, which was part and parcel, a lot of the false worship that went on in Corinth and in, in the Roman world during that time. No Bacchanalian feast for Paul. No question about his behavior and all these things. So Paul says, listen, I'm going to bridge the gap to the Gentile, but I'm not going to do things that the Gentile does that's wicked. But I also am free in Christ. I recognize there's nobody receiving the sacrifice in the temple. And I can go to a celebration and I can go to a feast day or whatever dedicated to whomever. And it means nothing because there isn't anybody up there. There isn't anybody receiving it. There's no false God as that. So when I go and talk to Gentiles and when I'm with the Gentiles, I said, I can do that. But I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not, there's not going to be a question about my behavior. I'm not going to be a wicked man, a lawless life. I'm not going to participate in actually worshiping a false God. I'm not going to uh, participate in immorality to win souls. But he'd meet them right where they were, like in Acts 17. It was a really great example, in fact. As so Paul is there. There's a bunch of worship going on. And Paul's there. He stands in the middle of the Areopagus, and he says this. He says, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. Now, he could have said a whole lot of things, okay? And perhaps as we were standing, we were just thinking, what in the world are you doing? Okay, I mean, that's, if you think about it, that's probably how your, my reaction would have been. As you see all these guys bowing down, all these hundreds of different idols, and there's still much there still as has been excavated. Um, but anyway, but he stands there and says, look, I observe you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. So here's Paul. He's right there in the middle of all that's going on. He's making himself as a Gentile to, to be able to witness to Gentiles. And the Lord allows this segue into an opportunity to witness and give the gospel. Some thought he was ridiculous when he got all done. And some said, hey, we'll hear you again. We, we'd like to hear what you have to say about that. So Paul understands how this works. He understands there's no false gods. There's nobody stamping approval. There's nobody receiving the, the false, uh, false the food that's coming into the, into the idol. Nobody's there. It's not changing anything. So Paul just says, listen, I can become as those without law. So Paul qualifies this bridge to the Gentiles and says, look, though not being without the law of God. Everyone is under God's moral law. Uh, God's top ten applies to everyone, even those who don't have God's moral law. Paul says in Romans 2, have a law from God written on their conscience. God's law applies. God's moral law applies. It's, nobody's out from under that. Paul's just to confirm that he stays far away from any kind of behavior that could be construed as immoral. God's moral law still applies, and I'm not coming out from under God's moral law. 
Now look at the next part of verse 21. But under the law of Christ. So when he's with Gentiles, he remained subject to God's rule in all things. But it wasn't through a life of, like he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 21. It wasn't this kind of life. It wasn't don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Paul's not bringing that to the table, okay? That's not how he's going to handle himself. Because he says all those things are destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandment of the teaching of men. These are matters of which, uh, to, which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but of no value against fleshly indulgence. So Paul's not bringing that to the table, okay? When he's with Gentiles, he remains subject to God's rule in all things, but not through a don't handle, don't touch, don't taste type of, of approach to it. Paul's free. When he says, but under the law of Christ, he just uses words that are all throughout the New Testament. And I think it's very familiar to us as we see it this way. It's the law, the law of Christ is called the law of liberty in James 1.25. Uh, James says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. God's law is always perfect. If you remember Psalm 19.7, the law of God is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. But now the gospel has come, and in receiving that gospel, the Holy Spirit is in residence. So believers, then, because of the gospel, are truly liberated from the bondage and penalty of sin and empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep the moral law of God. The gospel of Christ doesn't get rid of the moral law of God. It gives the believer liberty to keep it, see? And that's what Paul taught the church in Rome, in Romans 8, 2 through 4. We looked at this as we went through Rome, Romans uh, verse by verse. But just here it says, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There it is again. It's just called something different. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, because he's already condemned sin in the flesh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the law of Christ, walking according to the Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about. I'm not free from God's law, but I am submitting to the law of Christ. I'm walking according to the Spirit. It's the result of the gospel, the law of Christ, the spirit of life in Christ. The law of liberty is the gospel. It sets the believer free from the law of sin or death. That's what Paul says. I'm, I'm not under the law, but not free from the law of God, this uh, law of Christ, this uh, uh, walking according to the Spirit, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, the law of liberty, all of that. Paul wants to live in such a way, he says, that I might win those who are without law. So being godless and, un, and, uh, and lawless is not the way to do it, but he walks in liberty under the gospel. He has the freedom to obey God's law and the power to do it by the resident Holy Spirit. That's how he walks. A winsome Christian who understands he's a servant of all and understands he's under the law of liberty in Christ, that the law has already been fulfilled and the payment has been paid in Christ, and now you're free to walk in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit obeying God's moral law because now you can and now that you want to. So he has a burden for the lost. He's made himself a slave to the unredeemed. And when he goes among the Gentiles, he connects to them in every way he can and lives according to the law of liberty, which is the gospel at work in his life, in the hearts of the unredeemed, through the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Now let's move on and get to Paul's third example, verse 22. So Paul says this, To the weak... I became weak that I might win the weak. So now he kind of connects right back to where he started with the whole thing, okay? Paul sets aside his freedom for the sake of the weak. That's the third example Paul uses, is going as far as he can go to bridge the gap, uh, the gospel, to bridge the gap of the gospel to the unredeemed. So here's the weak, okay? 
First it's the Jew, then it's the Gentile, now it's the weak. You go as far as I can go, I'm going to become all things to all men, by all means I can win some, and here are some of those examples. And he takes us back really to the reason for the original discussion with some of the people in the church in Rome. Turn back, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Just hold your finger here and go back. There's your third example for your notes. But 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here's Paul just really un- helping them understand their liberty. Because you had a few in Corinth, they're like, I'm free, and I'm going to do what I want in Christ. And you know what? If you can't manage that as a, as a believer, it's just a problem for you. That's too bad for you. Grow up. And Paul's like, look, I understand you have freedom, and I understand that you can eat whatever you want, and I understand there's no such thing as, a, as an idol in this world. I understand all of that, but there's more on you about limiting your freedom than just you doing what you want to do. And so back in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, he says this, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the what, beloved? What does it say? Weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, so you have correct knowledge, you understand all the stuff that's going on, the dynamic that occurs when you come to Christ and there's no God but just God. So, you know, if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? And what's the answer to it? Perhaps. And is that a good thing? No. Verse 11, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Verse 12, And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, there's that word again, you sin against Christ. Therefore, verse 13, If food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And again, the weak are not weak in saving faith, okay? They are weak in the faith needed to comprehend what they've been saved from. Remember that when we went through that in Romans? They are weak in the faith needed in their understanding of what they can do, the freedoms that they have in Christ. At this point, their conscience doesn't allow them to do some of those things. And there's an obligation on the strong. And it's always like that. Being free in Christ and being strong in the faith is not a chip on your shoulder. You walk around hoping somebody will knock off so you can get in an argument with them. Okay, even though Facebook would seem to be indicate the opposite of that. The fact of the matter is that if you're strong in the faith and you understand your freedom in Christ, you are a slave to those who are weak. Not that the church will stay weak and stay immature, but that they'll be, it'll be brought along at the pace God wants it to be brought along. And you bear along with them. And that's Paul's point here. He says, listen, you're surrounded by weaker believers, some who've been in idol worship all their life and now are in the faith. And for them to see you do that, that's a problem for them. And you're going to wound their conscience... And won't they be strengthened perhaps to do things that they used to do and don't do right now but get pulled back in temporarily? Perhaps you're going to you know, ruin them. And that English word, as I said before, is kind of final in the English but in, in, not in, uh, in scriptural basis. It, the ruined idea is a temporary ruin because you're secure in Christ. But just being set aside is not doing anything for any good. So temporarily set aside. And so the weaker not weak in saving faith, the weaker weak in faith needed to comprehend what they've been saved from. They're weak in the faith needed in their understanding of what they can do, the freedoms that they have in Christ. And then Paul says in Romans 14.1, and you remember this as you went through this with us, he says this, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. There's going to be people who are going to have a different opinion than you. And if you're weak, uh, you may come and say, look, I can't do that, or that's not how we used to do it in my church, or I just don't like that, or whatever. And if you're strong in the faith, it says, listen, accept the one who's weak but not because you want to give them an earful and you want to correct them and bring them along and straighten them out. 
And it has to go, it has to do with freedom. The believer has to choose, and we get that, okay? So I don't want to keep rehashing this, but Paul, this is important for Paul, and he goes over several examples of how it's supposed to look. And now he's moved actually to the unredeemed world. Okay, so not only is Paul cognizant of the fact that there are those who are weak in the faith among the Jewish and Gentile churches. Here's Paul reminding the Corinthians that there are some who are weak among the unredeemed. In other words, he was concerned about the unredeemed to whom he had made himself a slave, that they could view his freedom to do as he wished inside the law of Christ, of course, and his action could throw up a roadblock to the gospel, and that's something Paul definitely did not want to do. And I would say, beloved, that if there's anything connects to, the, to real life for us today in the time that we spent in the Word this morning, that's it, okay? Yes, you're free in Christ, but it's just part and, par- part and parcel of being a believer in Christ that you're a bond slave to those who are unredeemed, and that means that it matters what they think about what you do, okay? So in this context, it meant that Paul willingly gave up his freedom to go to the dining rooms and to go to the local temples and to eat the idol-sacrificed meat. It meant that Paul gave up his right to go to do a community celebration or a feast or a marriage or a festival celebrated to the gods. When Paul was ministering to the unredeemed, he would give up his rights to do that, even though he had perfect right to do it, and there wasn't a God there, and perhaps in your mind you'd be thinking, well, if he went ahead and ate, he could just say, hey, there's no God, you know, this, this doesn't matter. Paul says, no, I'm going to give up the right to do that, see? He was free to do so because there was no such thing as a God. They were false. There was no corresponding deity. He was free to eat it. Eating it didn't break his fellowship with Christ. Neither did not eating it enhance his fellowship. God didn't care about what he ate or didn't eat. But as he had been, but he had taught, like he taught in chapter 8, the unredeemed who watched him could interpret his action as an endorsement of their behavior. Okay? Do you understand? Something they'd been enslaved to for their entire life whatever that might be. So as a bond slave of Christ and and a bond slave of the lost, he used his freedom to free himself from any need to visit those temples or perhaps attend any celebrations to perhaps gain the weak. In other words, to see those bound in sin come to faith. Now, here's an important lesson, a principle really to pull out of that particular statement from Paul as he had brought his focus in this section on the unredeemed. Here's principle number three. It matters what the world thinks about what you allow. It matters. And whatever that might be, in whatever culture you may live in, if they look at some certain behavior that you have freedom to do, and they don't correspond that behavior with someone who's a believer, guess what? As a believer, you are a bond slave to what they think about that. And you're under obligation then to free yourself from your freedom to do it for the sake of the lost. And we've grown up so used to dismissing the unredeemed world as unimportant and evaluating what we do and don't do. Like, it's, it's not important. They're not going to understand us anyway. You know, they're just going to think what they're going to think. And isn't, you know, any, it's not anything we can do about it. We're just going to do our thing. They don't understand Christianity, so why should I worry about being judged by the unsaved? We're just used to growing up that way. We're just used to thinking that about the unredeemed. But according to Paul, I don't believe we, believers can exercise their freedom without considering not only how their actions will affect other believers, but how their action will impact the unredeemed and what they're doing and what the unredeemed will think about. It. Will your actions pave the way for the gospel? Or will you have to explain what you're doing in order to try to get the gospel in? See, Because if it's the second one, beloved, you're, you're only throwing up a roadblock. You're not paving the way, okay? So ask, will my actions, whatever it is I do, in front of the unredeemed, as they watch, will that pave the way for the gospel, 
or will my actions tear up the path that the gospel has to travel? That becomes a very freeing thing, doesn't it? In your freedom in Christ, you can ask that question and you can limit those things that will tear up the, the road that's going to lead to the gospel. And look at the last part of verse 22, if you would. I think we get that. I want to just kind of keep hammering on it. Verse 22, as I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Whatever the lost are, whether they're Jews under the law, Gentiles without the law, weak of any category, redeemed, unredeemed. And the underlying spirit of this statement isn't just an awareness of Paul's true status as a bond slave and the true status of every follower of Christ, slaves yet free by the law of Christ. And it becomes really, if you will, because Christ came to seek and save the lost, the Great Commission becomes the personal mandate of all who are called by his name. Wouldn't you agree? If Christ came, let's say it again, if Christ came to seek and save the lost, does that become the personal mandate for all who believe? Just, if you don't know what I'm saying, just shake your head like this, okay? It becomes the personal mandate of all who believe, okay? If Christ came to seek and save the lost, and we're supposed to become like our master, does that become the personal mandate of everybody who believe? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. So Paul's illustrating then, if you will, if you understand that basic principle, this basic to Christianity, Paul's illustrating what it looks like to use your freedom to set aside your freedom. But we see a greater lesson of responsibility of personal awareness. It's not just kind of walking through your Christian life without any awareness of what's going on. A sensitivity to others in whatever walk of life they're in. You have to be aware of what's going on around you. A desire above all things to see them gained for Christ, saved, not lost. That's your desire, okay? God does his work through his gospel in his sovereignty. But listen, you have responsibility. You have the Great Commission, as your mandate, because you are redeemed, and you're supposed to become like your master, and your master came to seek and save the lost, and that becomes your job five times in the New Testament. It is your job, okay, and my job. So for following Paul's example, Philippians 4.9, then those things he has pointed out become our guiding principles. Things you've heard and seen and hear to be in me, do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, I'm giving you that example. I'm using myself as an example so you can see what it looks like to actually walk with Christ, to be a follower of Christ. Now, Paul's going to show how, the, how he does this in these last few verses, and we're going to kind of wrap this up. And we'll really pull two more principles of freedom living from these last five verses. But look at verse 23. We'll read through verse 27, okay? This is just it's a remarkable section of Scripture. Paul's going to show how this works because you can automatically hear the questions, okay? How in the world can you become all things to all people that by all means win some? That seems impossible. So here's what Paul says. Look at verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it, Verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? You know this, he says. That's common knowledge. Run in such a way that you may win. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Verse 26, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Verse 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here's principle number four, okay? Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Here it is, beloved. True freedom living. And that's freedom to limit your freedom for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. True freedom living, okay, requires the last fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22. And what is it? 5.23, rather. What is it? Self-control. 
It's going to require self-control, beloved. And that is the fruit of the Spirit, so it's something that should be being born in you already. Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Uh, someone may say, you know, Paul, how can we possibly do that? I mean, how can we start acting like that? It's impossible to be all things to all people. And Paul would say, you're right. You can't pull that out of your hat. Okay? You're not just going to be walk along and say, okay, I'll, I'll be able to, I'm going to be all things to all people. I'll just pull that out of my hat. This is how I'm going to act now. I've just decided now this is what I'm going to do. Okay? You're not going to be able to switch that on when you want to switch it on and then switch it off when you want to switch it off. Okay? Here's what I do, Paul says. I do everything I do for the sake of the gospel. That's the first mindset. Okay? Everything I do, I do for the sake of the gospel. And I guess it's, it's just obvious because if you're a bond slave, right, then your whole life is to please your master. I mean, if you kind of put the words together, it just becomes obvious, right? But Paul gives us the secret. Here it is, okay? And, I, and I, when I say this, I want you to evaluate. Have you ever thought this thought as it relates to any decision in your life? And if you have, I am so grateful. If you haven't, today's the start, okay? Here it is. Here's the secret Paul gives. I pattern and I prioritize my life for the sake of the gospel. I pattern and I prioritize my life for the sake of the gospel. I do, from the Greek verb poieo, present active indicative, this is the current situation of my life, Paul says. All things for the sake of the gospel. Now here's the thing, beloved, okay? Can you imagine making every decision with that thought foremost in your mind? Every job decision, every purchase, every move, everything under this mandate, every evaluation of a, a future mate, whatever it is, okay? Paul says, here's the secret. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I pattern, I prioritize my life for the sake of the gospel. So can you imagine making every decision like that? Have you thought that in your mind at any point? I think that is the intensity that's required here. I think that's exactly what Paul's saying. I'm... Everything I do, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, whatever it is. I'm a tent maker. I, I refuse support from some churches. I go here. I go there. I do all the stuff I do. Whatever it is I do, every decision I make, everything that I say, all that I involve myself in, and, and in our modern world, things are so much more complex, aren't they? But bottom line is this. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And then he says this, verse 20, the last part of verse 20, next part of verse 23, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. From the verb genomen, Eris middle subjunctive, that's a contingency there in eris middle subjunctive. The English captures it, that I may become a future date out there. What, Paul? Uh, Paul patterns and prioritizes his life so that he can participate in something at a point in time in the future. That's what he's looking for. And what is it? Soinkoyonomos, fellow partaker. What was it that Paul would use his freedom to give up his freedom for? Here it is. What would cause him to give up things to his own detriment? What is it for which Paul would say, I pattern and prioritize my life for the sake of the gospel? Everything I consider doing, I consider first how it will impact my gospel witness. Why would you do it, Paul? So that I can, in the future, enjoy it with the Jew and those under the law and those without the law and those who are weak. Everyone has lost so that I can become a fellow partaker of it with them so that I can share in it with those who were once lost but are now found. That future date. I'm okay with giving up whatever it is. I'm okay with patterning my entire life, prioritizing my whole life, so that I can I make a, a judgment about how it's going to impact my future witness. Why? So that at a future date, I'm going to be able to celebrate with those people that I gave up those freedoms for. Why? Because they came to faith as a result of me bringing that to the table. You see that? 
Paul's like, this is great. I'm looking forward to a day, and I'm okay with giving up whatever it is. Now, the Lord knows you need what you need, okay? He knows you have to have a job and a place to live and, and something to drive, and you got to get your education, and you got to do your thing. Listen, he's all right with that. Matthew 6, you know, just read it. He recognizes you need all those things, okay? But that was the prize for Paul, wasn't it? That at some point in the future, I can be a fellow partaker of it. What? This gospel I've given out to the people I've given it out to. The freedoms that I went ahead and said, okay, I won't do this. I'm okay with not doing this. I'm okay with limiting myself to my own detriment. I'm okay with all of that because someday there's a future appointment and I'm going to be able to celebrate and be a, a participant in the gospel with these folks. And isn't that, that's, that's the highest honor. That's the prize Paul talks about, okay? That's the highest honor. That's Paul's greatest accomplishment. That's Matthew 6, living, isn't it? In a nutshell, I mean, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's it, isn't it? If you're seeking the kingdom, then you're about the mandate the master's given. And you're seeking his righteousness, you're living by this law of freedom in Christ, aren't you? Because you can do it, the Holy Spirit's resident in you, and all of that. And all these things will be added to you. Listen, I know you have to live, Jesus said, and I know you need what you need. Just make all your decisions, just like Paul said. Listen, make your decisions that way. Do everything you do for the sake of the gospel. Just as you organize your life, and you take your first job, and you do whatever it is, you make your next move, and you move up to this place... Just consider, how does it impact the gospel? Why? Because there's a future date, and you're going to be so glad that you considered it. It became part of the fabric of your decision-making, and because later, you're going to get to be a fellow partaker with those who are lost. The Lord knows we live on this earth. He knows we need a job. We need all those things. But before we make that decision about all that, we have to think about whether we're ordering our lives for the gospel's sake and then align ourselves with that orientation. See, that's the issue. It's just part and parcel of being a believer, see? And then Paul illustrates the secret to his life priorities just quickly. And we can get, we, these are so self-explanatory, and, and those who participated understand these things. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. This is common knowledge as it relates to sporting events, isn't it? The prize here and later, the wreath in context, all point to success in sharing the gospel. This is that's the context, okay? It's patterning your life after the gospel. It's becoming all things for all men. By all means, uh, win some. The, the, the prize, the, all of that stuff, okay? Uh, the, the wreath and all that, that's all success in sharing the gospel. To be a fellow partaker with those who used to be lost. If you want to be all things to all men in order to win some, it's going to take self-control. It's going to take discipline, as we saw in that principle, okay? Paul says there's no exception to this rule. It takes a lot of hard work to reach that goal. You're not going to just... Pull that out of your hat. You're just going to flip a switch and say, okay, I'm going to be all things to all men now. No, it doesn't work like that. You're going to have to bring yourself under subjection. You're going to have to rein your life in, okay? And if you were one of the ones when I said, have you ever used this question? I'm patterning my life for the gospel's sake. If you ever, haven't ever used that question in your life, then this is it, okay? Time to rein your life in. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. It's common knowledge. There's no exception to the rule. It takes hard work to reach that goal. Now look at verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Once again, you know, if you've been in athletics or watched athletics, there's, pain, there's a pain barrier that has to be managed and overcome, isn't there? And whatever sport that you participate in, uh, there's a pain barrier. 
It's got to be managed, it's got to be overcome. There's got to be some strict guidelines, calorie intake and training and recovery and rest and all that kind of stuff. You understand all that, Paul just uses this as an example. There are fundamental patterns that have to be learned, muscle memory, all of that, whatever sport you're taking part in. And all of that occurs for a fading crown, Paul says, for a corroding metal, for a wilting wreath. And beloved, very similar discipline, this is Paul's point here, very similar discipline has to occur if we're going to be able to have these principles as part of the conduct of our life. See, And Paul's point here is, it isn't optional, okay? Run in such a way that you may win. Paul gives that as an admonition to those who are reading. Run that way. This is part and parcel of who you are as you become like your master who came to seek and save the lost. And if you're a bond slave to the unredeemed, then you're going to have to run this way. And it's going to take some self-discipline and reining yourself in in order for that to happen. And Paul says, this is how I arrived where I am. Look at verse 26. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. And in our modern culture, there are so many things that, that distract us and attract us away. Paul says, listen, I'm not running and then kind of running my own trail. There's a trail laid out. I've got to follow it. If I'm running a marathon, it's, the track is laid out. You can't go off of it. You can't cut the corners and whatever. Okay, if you're running on a track and you're running the 400, you've got to stay on the track and you've got to stay in your lane. Paul says, listen, I, this is what I do. This is how I arrived where I am. And then this becomes the example then of what it looks like, see? I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the ear. And there's lots of stuff in our modern culture that distracts us, that attracts us away and clamors for preeminence and intrudes on our discipline, see? And we can just seem like we're, we're doing our Christianity, our bond slavery, aimlessly. Paul says you can't do this aimlessly, okay? You're not, you're not striking air and not striking what you're supposed to strike. You can't run Christianity in your life that way, see? Paul says this is how I got here. Paul, how can you be all things to all men that by all means win some? This is how, by self-control and discipline, Paul says, I discipline myself. There's a course laid out. We ought to run it. And it seems as if, and beloved, understand, I just think that the modern church has moved so far away from the discipline and self-control to become all things to all people that by all means it may win some or do all things for the sake of the gospel that some may go to church, listen, all of their lives and never even think those thoughts at all, let alone becoming actively honing the skills. Would you agree with that? I, I think, you know, somebody put something on Facebook the other day, it's a difference between a missional church and, I don't remember, it's a missional church and then uh, and going to church or something like that. And I liked it only because I think this, the missional church was the one that we're talking about here. It's like, do you even think about those thoughts that I've disciplined my life and made, you know, that I'm bringing it under subjection because I am becoming like my master and I want in my freedom to limit my freedom to make myself a bond slave for the unredeemed. Does that thought even come into the mind of the, local, uh, the modern local church anymore? I don't even know. You know, I talked to churches up in the Northeast. I pastored up there uh, a good bit and, and there are a number of churches where I know men who are in the church and they're, they're struggling with the church and how come it's not, you know, we're not seeing anybody come in or we're not baptizing anybody or whatever it is. And I just asked this question, who, who are your soul winners in your church? People you know that are actively witnessing, who, who are they? And sometimes they can name some, sometimes they can't name any. And I'm just like, well, there you are, right? I mean, it's not coming into the mind anymore. I've become all things to all people that by all means I may win some. It's not in the mind of the church anymore. I want to do all things for the sake of the gospel. It's I want to do all things for the sake of me. What do you bring to, what do you bring to the table that I can consume? See, I think it was a consumer church. That's what it was. A consumer church and then a missional church. Just bring it to me so I can consume it. I want to consume it. Not I'm patterning my thoughts and my mind and my life so that I can be more effective tomorrow than I was today. See, 
And I think that so that the message from Paul becomes so relevant to the church today. It's like, wow, this is just part and parcel of regular Christianity. You're a bond slave of the unredeemed. And Paul ends with this thought. He says, verse 27, look there if you would. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Around Paul, around the Corinthians are the temples of immorality, of course. Self-indulgence is the name of the game. And the fruit of the Spirit is key here. So just like the athlete must say no to some things, so you have to say no to some things. You have freedom in Christ, but you have an obligation as a slave to think of the unredeemed first. I discipline, hupiazo, present active indicative. Literally, it's striking in the face. That's the idea. Strike about the face to beat black and blue. I don't think Paul was physically striking himself as he stood in, you know, in front of a polished piece of metal. He wasn't like, pow, don't do that anymore. Boom, don't think that anymore. That, that'll serve you, right? You'll remember that next time you have that thought. He wasn't doing that. I don't think that's the, the idea. I think the issue is really what he was doing is he was creating annoyance, a wearing out of the flesh. He, he recognized the areas where he was having some trouble. He wants to be about what Christ wants him to do. So he puts his flesh last. He wears it down. He recognizes the areas where he's having some struggles. And he's being actively involved in bringing that and reining that in and being disciplined and having self-control. See, even the things he's free to do come under close scrutiny as how those things would impact the watching world. Very specific, intentional living. See, just kind of aimlessly doing Christianity. And his own stake in the matter is where he ends this section. He says, after I've preached to others, he says, I myself will not be disqualified. Doing what the Lord appointed him to do, that's preaching to others. Seeing others come into the kingdom, that's what he wants to see happen. I myself will not be disqualified. Looking towards a time in the future, again, Omi, like we saw before, aorist, middle, subjunctive, that future time that could come in the future, something that's going to happen perhaps, that future time. He doesn't want to be there and at that time in the future where he's going to have disqualified himself. He doesn't want that. He wants a meeting with the unredeemed. He's looking forward to sharing in the gospel at some point because he's been faithful. He doesn't want to have that future time where he's just set himself on the sideline. Remember the context, okay? The prize is the effective gospel witness where others come to faith, okay? It happens when the believer makes himself a bond slave to the unredeemed and sets aside his rights to pave the way for salvation. And Paul never wants to get to the point where he has torn up the road that an unbeliever must use to come to faith so that he is set aside, no longer useful for the Great Commission, preaching to others, to the Corinthian church, but because of a lack of discipline in his own life, finding his witness effectively sidelined. See, Paul doesn't want that. He doesn't want that as a future. He wants the future as rejoicing together with those who come to faith, see. So it's not talking about Paul losing his faith, not Paul, Paul you know, somehow getting kicked out of salvation. It's none of that, okay? In the context, recognize it. In the athletic illustration, Paul doesn't want to be disqualified, okay? And so a very sobering principle, number five, here it is. It's possible, beloved, to be set aside by the Lord and fail at our main job by a lack of self-control. It's possible. And there's a lot of irony there that Paul wants to avoid. And it brings to the forefront how strong the warnings are from Paul concerning the spiritual f- fruit of self-control and, and spiritual discipline. Paul gives us what the believer is supposed to look like, and we can do all of that because of what we saw as we started our time together in John 13, 15, where Jesus said, For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That's the example of what he wants his church to do. 
And beloved, I don't think as we look at Paul's teaching, as we look at Jesus' teaching, we could come away uh, from this with any of uh, these passages with any other understanding. It's not complicated, see? But it does require intentional living. And discipline and self-control is fruit of the Spirit. That you're reining your life in, you're seeing, you're, you're aware of what's going on with weak believers around you. You're aware of what's going on with the world that's watching and what you're allowing. And are you going to have to make an excuse for what you do with the world? Are you going to be, you know, so connected to the world they don't even see the difference between you and, and their own lifestyle? It's based on who we are in Christ. You can do it, right? It, you know, it's not complicated. Jesus taught it. He modeled it. Disciples learned it. Paul learned it. It's our turn to learn it. He's the master. We're to be like him. We're co-heirs with Christ. The kingdom belongs to us. We're secure in our future. We're forgiven of our sin. We have the Holy Spirit's resource in our lives to enable us. And if we know these things, which we do, we're blessed if we do them. Because we know there's a reward connected to doing it. A choice to willingly limit your freedom because Christ made himself of no reputation and be a servant to the church, uh, to the church, to the lost. Christ took on the form of a servant. So you're just being like your master. It's just real basic. And you begin to look like a reprint of Christ and you have promised blessing as a result. There it is. That's Paul's second example of what it looks like, freedom to limit your freedom, as he uses this very important and relevant passage to teach us what it looks like to be a believer. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. A few announcements, and then we'll be, uh, we'll be out and back for a, a business, quick business meeting. Lord, we thank you today for the opportunity to be in your word. We're so grateful for uh, how clear the passages are and how relevant they are for us. And Father, I pray, and I know many here are very much intentional, missional in focus, knowing their life is not their own, bought with a price, glorify God with their bodies, which are the Lord's. We, we recognize that. I know there's many who do. But I know that in a, in a group uh, this size, there are some who've never thought those thoughts, that uh, aligning them priorities and uh, categories and categorizing the life so that it is uh, aligned for the furtherance of the gospel perhaps has never even been in the whole mix and the equation. And Father, I pray today will be the beginning of that. And for, for, for us who desire to live that way, Father, help us to recognize that it is self-control that is important, that we have to live intentionally, as Paul says, training and, and uh, bringing the body under subjection and all of those things which uh, allow us to see and be aware of what's going on around us, limiting our, our appetites and, and the unredeemed flesh that desires so many things that are contrary to the gospel's purpose. So, Father, I pray that uh, you'll just use your Holy Spirit to work inside of us now. It is your work that you're doing. It is your a completed project uh, that you will finish in each of us. And we thank you for your concern for us and for your clear teaching from the word to show us how we're to live and just the basics of what it looks like to live in such a way uh, that you are represented correctly and Christ is reprinted in our life. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.